1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Let's pray. Lord, we behold our God, the risen one, our Savior. We adore you this morning. We acknowledge your lordship, your kingship. We proclaim you as the one true God. Lord, we pray in these moments those truths would rise up. Increasing conviction. Deeper worship. Lord, even as we talk about our adversary, reality is we recognize and frame this all in the fact that you are ruler and you are Lord. It has always been. It will never change. You are Alpha and Omega. We worship you this day. Please teach us by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Peter 5.8 makes it very, very clear we have an adversary. We began a series a couple weeks ago on spiritual warfare. And warfare would imply that there's an enemy. And the whole thesis of our study is that everything we see in the physical, visible realm is affected and influenced by what's taking place in the spiritual realm. And so what we see is our senses are not the ultimate reality. They're not the limit. There's a spiritual battle going on, and we have an adversary. This morning, I'd like to talk about the adversary, your adversary, not because I find it a fun topic, believe me, (laughs) because the scriptures say an awful lot about our adversary, so you and I would be equipped, warned, so we could walk in victory. Now, some things about the adversary, his nature. The scriptures, first of all, tell us he's a fallen angel. And all that's true of angels in the general sense is true of Satan and the demons, the fallen angels. He's a creature like all angels. He's created by God, the creator of all things. He's a creature. He's a spirit being. Hebrews 1, 7 through 14 describe angels as spirits. And demons are called unclean spirits I'll just give you one of many examples. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. We're going to be flying through Scripture, so um, you're going to to probably need to write a lot of these down. Um, Jesus says in his ministry, he's healing many people. He comes to Peter. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and he touches her hand. The fever leaves her. She rises, begins to serve him. Now that evening, they brought to many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so if we read that verse again, he healed those who were pressed by demons and he cast out the spirits. So he equates demon with spirits. And so they're not only created, they're creatures, they're spirit beings, and they have limitations. Though powerful, our adversary is not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent. He has limitations. He cannot be everywhere at once. However, as the chief of demons and chief of demonic forces, as the prince of the power of the air, 
is a chief of a vast host of demons who are so numerous, they make Satan's power and presence widespread. And because of his limitations, there's many references to Satan that conclude his whole host and cohorts. And so it refers to Satan, it's also referring to his kingdom as well. Satan does not personally tempt each of us, for he simply cannot do that. He's limited. But he's able to do through through demons in the whole world system. In multiple passages, Satan and devil seem to stand for for Satan's kingdom. What's the personality of Satan? Well, he shows intelligence, 2 Corinthians 11.3. He shows emotion. He becomes angry in in Revelation 12.17. He demonstrates he has a will, Isaiah 14.12-14 and 2 Timothy 26. So he shows intelligence. He's morally responsible. If Satan were simply a personification that people devised to express their ideas of evil, he could hardly be held morally responsible for his action. But Scripture is very clear he's held accountable for his rebellion. And this is a sobering lesson. If Satan and his angels, like him, could be so close to God and his presence and still rebel in pride, seek to be independent of God, we certainly should learn. We should be careful lest we too fall. We should know that as with the temptation of evil, Satan will look to replicate that temptation in our lives. And so as we learn a couple things, his nature, his creature, his spirit being, he has limitations, his personality, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, he shows intelligence, he's morally responsible. The scriptures speak to many names of Satan. Now we know from Luke 10, 18, disciples came back and they're pretty, pretty juiced. They're like, hey, the demons are submitting to our name. We went out, we were casting out demons and all this stuff's going on. And Jesus warns them, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I saw Satan fall from heaven. In other words, I got the authority. So slow down, guys. Uh, but he identifies the adversary, Satan. But there's other names Satan goes by. A couple of them, uh, Matthew 4, 1. We know Jesus went to the wilderness. He was tempted by, Matthew 4, 1, the devil. Devil, the Greek term is diabolos, means slanderer, malignant accuser, defamer. Not just devil, Beelzebub, Matthew 12, 24. But when the Pharisees heard what was going on and what uh, was testified about, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, this word Beelzebub in the Old Testament referred to Lord of the Flies. And as we came to the New Testament, it became equated, that name, that title, with Prince of Demons. And so we have another name. Belial, 2 Corinthians 6.15. Belial means, in the Old Testament, what meant worthless, um, wicked, worthless one. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 calls him the lawless one. Maybe Paul had this, uh, this title in mind as well. So he's the prince of wickedness. He's the worthless one. He's the serpent. Revelation calls him the serpent of old. Hebrew, the Hebrew literally for serpent in, in the case has this idea of to hiss or shine. So we think of the word phrase, the definition shine, that seems awkward. But remember, Eve wasn't repulsed by this creature in the garden. In fact, she started talking to the, the, the serpent. So one time the serpent probably was a, a, a beautiful uh, creature. Um, but we know that's not the case anymore. Um, So we have the serpent, the serpent of old. 
Revelation 12.3 refers to Satan as the dragon. Basically, a drag, the dragon is a, is a serpent on steroids. <laughs> um, and so we have a title, the dragon. Frightening. He's a possessor of power. In 2 Timothy 4.17 and 1 Peter 5.8, he has a loud roar. He's a stalking praise, referred to as a lion. In Mark 3.27, he's called the strong one. In other words, Satan has power. We, we can't forget that. He's called the wicked one, 1 John 3.12. The devil's the embodiment of all that's evil and unholy. He's the accuser, Revelation 12.10. One of the sinister aspects, I think, of Satan's unceasing warfare versus believers, he seeks to rob of peace. He causes the believers to forget their spiritual identity. I'm convinced there's a very popular song out today um, it, it's popular on Christian radio and secular radio. It's called You Say by Lauren Daigle. Maybe you're familiar with it. But if you listen to the lyrics, it's speaking to the identity of the Christian. And we have a sinister aspect of our enemy, the adversary, is for you to forget who you are in Christ. We're going to talk a lot more about that because that's really a lot of the essence of the battle. We know that he's a tempter. He's called the tempter. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, I'll just read this passage. Paul's talking about longing to see this church and, and, and what he's heard from Timothy. And he says in verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So he refers to this adversary as the tempter. We know that to be very true, don't we? It's the artistry of the devil is to make himself invisible in our temptations. I mean, the fact is, if there are a temptation that came our way, and Satan came and said, hey, I'm Satan, I'm tempting you right now to destroy you, we'd all say, oh, forget it, no way. But, but he doesn't do that. He makes it look really good. And so he is indeed the tempter. He's the enemy Matthew 3.39, Luke 10.19, he's the enemy of God. He's your enemy. He's the enemy of God's kingdom. He's the enemy of all that's good. He's called a destroyer, a polyon of Revelation 9.11. His agenda is to destroy, to destroy you, to destroy your family, to destroy your testimony, to destroy the future, to destroy the church. The scriptures say, beware, this adversary is a destroyer. He's the prince of demons, John 12, 31. It speaks to his position in the leadership of rebellion. He's the prince of this world. He's the prince of the kingdom of error, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and Ephesians 2. You see, Satan heads up this present godless world system. The ruler of the world organizes this world system to exclude God. He controls the philosophy of this world. He's behind it. That's why it gets so frustrating I mean, you're like, how could somebody actually think that? How could somebody be so evil and think that that is actually a good thing? Behind it is satanic influence. He's called a thief, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I've come, you might have life. He's a killer. He's a murderer from the beginning, scriptures tell us. And so as we consider the character of Satan, we got some pretty heavy things that the scriptures reveal about him. And these names given to Lucifer after his fall reflect character. Satan's character was so completely corrupted that God gave him a different name, one that reflected his fallen nature. And these litany of new names 
tell us who he is, and they warn us to be on alert for his attacks. But you know what? Lucifer got something else hung on him besides new names, a destination called the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 41 says this lake of fire, Jesus says, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20.10 calls us the lake of fire and brimstone, where the devil and all his followers in the rebellion will be cast for all of eternity. And so there's this curse of Satan. We have this character, but we have the curse, and Scripture lets us on really quickly, lets us know the future of Satan in a demonic realm. Hebrews 2 brings a question, verse 14 to 16. It's a good time to ask it and consider what scriptures would say. The question goes like this, was there any possibility of redemption for Satan? I mean, was there any opportunity for Satan to repent and somehow be brought back into fellowship with God? Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, we read this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to long, long slavery. For surely, here's a key verse, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. There seemed to be no provision for their rebellion. The question would be why, though. I believe part of the reason is they sinned against too much light. Remember, they had first-hand experience with God. All they knew was his presence. All they knew, the light of his glory. He knew exactly what Satan knew, exactly what he was doing in rebellion. He wasn't tempted. He just rebelled against so much light. And perhaps that's why. Satan's eternal rebellion with his spiritual eyes wide open, there was no remedy for him. And when Adam and Eve followed Satan in his rebellion, they sinned against God. The human race received that same penalty, spiritual death. But God did something that, man, that for mankind that, that Satan and the whole angelic realm never saw coming. The greatest curveball ever, grace. Remember, the angelic realm had never seen grace more than likely until mankind had sinned. And God poured out his grace, Romans tells us. We're told in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we're saved by grace of God. 2 Timothy tells us even angelic realm longs to look into redemption. In other words, grace came along. And you could say Satan in the demonic realm, they didn't see that one coming. God saved us by grace. And Satan thought he'd won the battle when he seduced Adam and Eve in the garden. But Satan did not count on God's grace. Did not count on God acting in grace towards us. Satan not only defeated in his purpose of taking the entire human race with him to destruction, but he's also condemned to eternal death. That's his curse for his sin. But he's not going down quietly. There's weapons we have to deal with, weapons of Satan. It's already heard enough about Satan to know that although he has been decisively and eternally defeated by Jesus Christ, make no mistake, he sure talks a good game. He's not about to lie down and quit. He's still engaged in a great conquest, a great war against God for the souls of men and women. And he has some potent weapons at his disposal. 
That's one of them. It's a weapon of power and wealth. According to Luke 4, it seems like the devil stuff. He offers Jesus a whole lot. In 1 John 5, 19, we read, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're under the influence, you could say, this world. It's a world system with its godless rulers, godless people, godless teaching, godless ideas. It's the temptations, it's organized system that leaves God out. That's what the verse is talking about. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are surrounded by this stuff, this world system. John 12, 31, Jesus called him the ruler of this world. And this world has been handed over to Satan temporarily. Ultimately, God is in control. So Satan can influence. He can even seemingly do earthly good. He masquerades himself, we're told, as an angel of light. But the reality behind it is evil. Maybe you've picked up like me in your mail, um, maybe much to your chagrin, but you pick it up and, and, and the thing says, congratulations, congratulations. Your credit score is great. You qualify. You qualify for this particular credit card because you've been selected among many people for this new credit card. You're going to receive one of these cards, high dollar amount, and, and it makes you feel really good. I mean, you're one among many, after, actually, after all. And, and they're going to actually give you this credit card. Matter of fact, it might even be low interest for a little bit. But, but congratulations. You, you did it. I mean, way to go. You're one among many. You qualify. And the letter actually makes you think you accomplished something. It, may, it makes us think we deserve an award, a reward. But the credit card companies are not out to do you a favor but to collect interest. There's a buying power they want to give you, but it comes with a high price tag. Now, I'm not equating credit card companies with Satan. That I'm not doing. However, there's a principle in play, and it seems to be a similar principle. Satan can give us buying power, but he'll be there to collect heavy interest. That you can guarantee when the bill comes due. The interest he speaks of is your destruction. And so Satan says, hey, you can have all of this. Knock yourself out. Nobody can tell you what to do. You deserve that. But he didn't tell you about the interest that's due, the consequences that are going to happen. That's our enemy. That's the adversary. And he has a power of, of, of wealth, a weapon of power and wealth. He also has a weapon of deception. Everything he does is wrapped in lies. I'll let Jesus tell you that. In John chapter 8, it's an incredible chapter. There's so much going on in this chapter, but mainly it comes down to an argument the religious group is having with Jesus again. <laughs> um, and so as we follow this, I want you to see, I'm going to start reading in verse 39. They answered him, the religious establishment, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, well, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, well, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Boy, that tells us a whole lot. I mean, Jesus, first of all, talk about ticking off the religious establishment, calling uh, um, Satan their father, but he tells us a lot about Satan. He's the father of lies. His whole character is wrapped up in deception. He speaks his own nature, his own native tongue. Deception's at the heart of all he does. He's a father of lies. And when there's a father, there's a family. Satan has lots of kids, you could say. His words to religious leaders, their failure to receive Christ was their relationship to the devil. They had submitted to his lies. Even as Jesus came, he says, I spoke the truth to you, but you don't listen to me. You listen to your father, the devil. You listen to lies. Think about that for a moment. Those people who we rub shoulders with who reject Jesus Christ, who are they listening to? It's pretty clear, right? They're listening to lies. Shouldn't it be the Christian's job to say, here's the truth? I mean, right? I mean, if you've got a neighbor who's believing a lie and it's causing them to be enslaved to Satan, um, they're being led to destruction, I'm thinking we would be a very compassionate thing we did if we came and said, hey, let me tell you the truth about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what he's done in my life. That would be a very compassionate thing to do. We need to be more bold in doing that. Satan's a liar. He's a father of lies. He's a great deceiver, and it's one of his most powerful weapons is deception. I don't know if you've ever got a catalog and you leaf through it and you're like, oh, that's cool. Maybe it's a tool or, or maybe it's something that, that you've wanted for a while and you're like, man, I'm going to get that. And you order it and it comes and it, it doesn't look anything like what it was in the catalog. It's cheap. It, the material's not very good. It just doesn't look anything like what you saw in the catalog. Well, Satan knows how to put together a glossy, slick looking catalog of temptations. They look so good. Yet, he's thoroughly corrupt. It's, it's, it's who he is. It's the bone and sinew of his nature, if you could. And he uses the weapons of deception. They look good, but when you get them, you find out they ain't nothing like what you thought. And so he's got this weapon of power or wealth. He's got this weapon of deception. He's got this weapon of opposition. You can bank on Satan's opposition in your efforts to live for Christ. Satan's not too concerned, to be frankly honest, about believers who don't do anything. Believers who sit, maybe come to church when it's convenient, don't tell anybody about Christ, aren't really too concerned about obedience. Satan's got them right where they want them. But when you step out for Christ, step out to be a witness, step out to stand for him, walk in obedience, okay, now, now he's a little afraid. Now he's going to amp it up a little bit. You're going to notice opposition. Satan is content to let us go 
our own way as long as we're not trying to invade his, his kingdom and make an impact for Christ. Remember, he's still, remember behind it all, he wants to steal God's glory. So he's going to oppose anything that brings God's glory, God glory. All it comes back again to the fact that we're in a war with a powerful enemy and he wants God's glory. We're living in wartime, always walk this earth. Now, when a soldier goes to war, I'm grateful that for this, and if you've served in the military, first of all, thank you. Um, but you probably appreciated what's called R&R. A time to step away from the war a little bit and find some rest and recuperation. Isn't there times when we walk this earth, you're like, geez, I'd like a little R&R from Satan because this is getting old really quick. One thing after another, after another, after another. And that would be really cool. And maybe you don't realize there is. And maybe you don't realize that Satan has an allergy. He's allergic. It's kind of interesting. I didn't even thought Satan. He is allergic. He's allergic to worship. Why would you say that? Well, we're told God inhabits the praises of his people. If that's true, Satan's out there going, Achoo. when you sing, behold our God, he's allergic to worship. If you want to walk in victory, worship. Your personal times, you're in the car, man, time to worship. You're in your personal times of reading, worship. You're walking down in the marketplace, intentionally, specifically, intellectually worship. He's allergic to it. It's a good thing to remember. You want to keep him at distance? Well, you worship God. Be intentional in doing that. He has an allergy. He also has not only a weapon of opposition, he has a, uh, the weapon of accusation. Maybe this is the hardest, I don't know about for me, maybe. To be an effective accuser, you need an opportunity to make an accusation. Unfortunately, I've given him ample. Paul urges us, don't give the devil an opportunity to accuse us. Satan has been in God's court before. He knows what kind of judge God is. He knows he's completely holy. He knows he's completely just and righteous. He knows that sin can't dwell in God's presence. He knows God has to deal with it. So when we sin, we give the devil an opportunity to accuse us before God. That's why we ought not to play with sin. God's character demands he always deals with sin. And when we sin, it breaks fellowship with God. It also opens you and I up to the weapon of accusation. Accusations, to be honest, can become a fortress. When we allow Satan to build a fortress, we're in trouble. Because then he has influence over us. Don't let him bring you under his confusing or his accusing control. You know what the accusations are. You're no good. You screwed up again. Can't kick that habit, can you? Oh, remember when you hurt that person? And he keeps bringing our mind back. And he keeps accusing us. You're no good. You can't be forgiven. You're a loser. And the accusations go on and on and on. He's an accuser. And he uses that weapon all too well. Now, all this would be frightening. I mean, it's one thing to have an adversary, a powerful adversary, who's got some pretty serious weapons he is using against us, weapons we have trouble combating. All of this would be incredibly, incredibly frightening and discouraging. Except when we talk about the conquest. 
there's a way that you and I can experience victory on a regular basis. We've been given two powerful weapons that the enemy can't stand against. First of all, worship, but that's a kind of a freebie on these other two. Revelation 12.11 gives it to us. We're told in Revelation 12.11, they overcame him, Satan, two ways. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives so much as to shrink from death. They overcame him by the blood of Christ, the cross. Without the cross, this other weapon's not possible, we'll get to. You see, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross purchased our salvation. It also renders Satan powerless. Satan is not powerless. The cross renders him powerless. It detooth the lion, if I may. And so when we come to Jesus Christ, trusting what happened on the cross, his shed blood, his resurrection on our behalf, when we trust that, we have victory. There's victory in the blood of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, Paul gives you and I a really good picture of what this looks like in a practical term. Romans 8, 31 to 34. Paul says, Who then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so there's three questions Paul asks. The one who tries to condemn us is the accuser. But God answers the accusation and says Christ died for us. That's not all. Jesus not only died, Jesus was raised from the dead. So our accuser has to overcome not only the cross, but the resurrection. Well, the accuser then says, hey, but he keeps sinning. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, there's this thing called salvation, redemption, well, whatever that is, I don't know. But, but if this is your child, look, he keeps on sinning. Paul says, whoa, whoa, time out. It gets even better because he's at the right hand of the God, interceding for you. So no matter what Satan throws your way, he can come and accuse you, and you say, you know what? You're right, I sinned, but the blood of Jesus Christ has washed me new. And Satan comes and says, okay, yeah, but the wages of sin is still death. You say, yeah, but Jesus Christ rose from the dead, now giving me victory over death. He says, okay, that's all well and good. However, you still sin, you still blow it, I mean, you're still making mistakes. And you said, yeah, but that one who died and rose from the dead, he's sitting at the right hand of God interceding for me, so I don't know what else you got. Bring it on. Who can accuse me? Jesus Christ stands for you. He intercedes for you. It's the blood of Christ. That's our weapon. That we have vic- Jesus intercedes for us, thirst 40. 34, and then 1 John 2, 1 through 2, we read, My children, I write to you that you might not sin. But if you do, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The blood. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Satan says, look at what your child said. Look at what your, your child thought. Look at what your child did. Look at their sin. God says, I want you to look at the blood. That sin's been paid for. Never to be held against my child again. 
That's good news. He overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and we overcame him by the word of our testimony, our confession. He overcame him by the cross, overcame him by the confession. This has to do with the public testimony, our identification with Christ. You see, Satan hates baptism services. Satan doesn't want you to get baptized in Christ. Some of you might not have yet, and I guarantee behind that voice is an enemy saying, oh, you don't need, that's not a big deal. You don't need to go public with your faith. And so he removes that from your mind. He whispers in your ear, you don't need to get too out of control and tell people about Jesus. Don't do that. I mean, you look weird. And so all those things, but it's a weapon we have, is to take it to the streets, into our public confession. That's why it's important you work on your testimony. That's why it's important you follow and obey Christ in, in baptism, because it's one of the weapons we have to walk in victory, is our confession. If Satan silences our confession, he wins a foothold. Don't let him silence you. When one trusts Jesus, he sets free from Satan's kingdom. But it's possible to be spiritually set free, but still in bondage to Satan's accusations and intimidation. Satan's never going to change his character. He's not going to stop being Satan. He's not going to stop being an accuser, an opposer, a destroyer. He's not going to change. He'll never give up the contest until he's tossed into the lake of fire. He will be Satan for eternity in that sense. But he's been conquered. And the weapons we have are the blood of Christ and the word of our testimony. If you want victory over the adversary, pick up those two weapons. Stand in the power of the cross and the power of the blood and testify to Christ before man. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. In the word of their testimony, they love not their lives so much as to shrink from death. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I confess there's times, seemingly more so in my past, but even still, where the enemy's voice is awful loud. But Lord, I get excited just even sharing this last point. How magnificent in the midst of a world under our enemy's influence that, Lord, we could have freedom and victory in you. And, Lord, I'm amazed by your grace that you forgive us. I'm amazed that you've delivered us. We can live with you forever. What a future we have. Our enemy tells us we have no future. We proclaim there's a future in Christ. We'll be with you forever. And Lord, we forget this, but Lord, we praise you that you intercede for us. You see the battles we have. You see the accusations thrown against us, the opposition. In amazing things, you intercede for us. That's amazing. But God, you want us to know we don't have to listen to the lies. We don't need to, to live under the fear or the accusations, the opposition. You've given us as your children victory. So we praise you for that. God, by the power of your spirit, help us to walk in that freedom, to walk in that victory. So that a world that is in bondage could look and see that there's hope. And that hope is in you. And so, Lord, help us to live for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.